This is a Mortarbox Media Podcast. For more podcasts and to learn how we can help you create your own, visit mortarboxmedia.com. This episode and every episode of Madison Story Slam is sponsored by Ale Asylum. This episode is also sponsored by Resolution Health Collaborative. Thank you, Ale Asylum, and thank you, Resolution, for believing in what we do. Hey, it's the Madison Story Slam podcast, and you are tuning into it. I think you already know that. Thank you for tuning in. If you could do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on the app that you're using, leave us a rating and a review on, again, the app that you're using. Maybe it's iTunes, Apple Podcasts app, Google Podcasts, whatever app that you can leave a rating and a review for us. It would help us a ton. It helps people find the podcast. It helps me know what you're thinking about the podcast, what you like, maybe what you don't like, and we can work together to make it a show that everyone will like. The other thing that you could do for us, if you're feeling generous, you could go to patreon.com slash madisonstoryslam where you can become a patron of the show. Help us pay for things like the website fees, the podcast hosting fees. We have some cool rewards. If you do that, if you become a monthly patron, that would be awesome. The last thing that I'll tell you about is our new GoFundMe campaign we are trying to bring madison story slam live to the internet we're trying to live stream video of every event that we do and we need your help because we need to raise about twenty five hundred dollars and so far it's been going for about a month you guys have been awesome in sharing the link you've been awesome in uh, donating to the campaign Uh, i know that you love the community that we have built And um, it's cool to know that you want to see it grow even more. And that's what this live streaming can do for us. It will give us a wider audience and have more people able to attend, even though it might be virtually. They can attend our live events and and have fun with us. So that link is GoFundMe.com slash live. You can also find it in the show notes on this episode right now. Our next Story Slam event is Saturday, September 15th at the Wilmar Center. The theme is transformation, so please come ready to hear or maybe even share some great stories based on that theme. Again, our stories are 5 to 10 minutes, and they have to be true stories from your life based on that theme. But if you're a regular, you know that I kind of bend the rules sometimes, and we want to hear good stories. Hey, this episode is featuring stories from our July 2018 event at Robinia Courtyard. It was outdoors, and it was tons of fun. The theme was lost, and I want to give you a heads up. This portion of stories from that night tend to be kind of hard. They're kind of heavy. We have one story from Rita, and it was pretty heavy, and everybody kind of got hit really hard. But it was also healing. There's something about getting together with people and sharing your story that is healing. And it's healing for not just the storyteller, but everybody there. It was a great night. These are great stories. Please tune in. Listen to all of them. Tell us what you think. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for Madison Story Slam. All right. That's enough. I know you're here for stories. So here's the stories. Expect great things with me. Please put your hands together for Charles Payne. Keep the applause going for Charles Payne. One of my earliest memories is of my father losing me at a JCPenney's. I got lost in the revolving door of a coat rack. I tripped and fell under the coat rack. And when I got out, I started to panic because I didn't know where my father was. My breathing grew sallow, and I went back to my kindergarten training. I looked for the largest white woman I could find (laughs) that looked like my kindergarten teacher, Miss Loebsinger. I ran at her with my arms over my head, frantically waving. My little legs kicked across the white marble floors. I took in all the fluorescent lights and got the courage to grab her by her arm and do what we rehearsed in class. I said... My name is Charles Terry. I live at 1407 Pompton Circle, and I lost my father. The woman looked at me with so much shame. 
she sighed, she grabbed my hand, and she helped me. She took me to guest services where I calmed down and waited for my father to come get me after they called his name over the intercom. My father strolled in late, calm, and told me that this wasn't just another one of his cruel punishments. He lost me on purpose because this is what happens when you're black. You get hit from behind and you got to know how to react. He told me that soon I would face something I wasn't prepared to deal with. So I had to be ready. So in fifth grade, when my favorite teacher asked me to join the Boy Scouts, I jumped at the opportunity. Miss Johnson was kind of like black royalty in Lansing, Michigan. She's black royalty because her brother was Irvin Magic Johnson and her family had connection like the Lakers bus family. They'd ran classrooms. They had their own gymnasium named after them. They had a trash service, and they did all the youth basketball. But my favorite Johnson wasn't the basketball player because it was Miss Johnson that was magic. When she realized the reason why I couldn't read was because I couldn't see, she waved the wand and somehow got me an eye exam in my first pair of specs. When she realized I couldn't do my homework because I was at home by myself watching, watching myself and my sister, she found us transportation to get to the Boys and Girls Club and tutors for both of us. So when she told me the word we blow meant loyal, I knew I wanted to be loyal like her. So I signed up and all was going great. I tied a few knots, I sold popcorn. I was really enjoying myself until they invited me on the annual Boy Scouts camp. And I had to go. One, I was nervous because my father had to go because he forgot to sign the permission slip. So they said the only way I could go is if he came along with me. And two, I was nervous because of my doo-doo stained tidy whities Sadly, they also had holes in them. I learned later in life that this is because bacteria grows on your testicles. And if you don't use antibacterial soap, it eats through your underwear. And the doo-doo part was kind of my bad. Um, <laughs> No one explained to me that when you have like an unusually long butt crack, that if you don't wipe it correctly, you get hemorrhoids. And that's the reason why my underwear were stained with brown and red blotches like a Jason Pollock painting. So when my dad got to camp, I was like mortified when they flew Brandon's underwear on the flag on the first five minutes. And I was thinking, I'm not ready for the world to see my artwork yet. So when the scout leader's son came up with this pack, he was like, if you sleep naked, I won't hang up your underwear. I jumped to that opportunity too, because sleeping naked, what's the worst that could happen? I slept soundly, knowing my underwear was safe, only to wake up freezing in the middle of the woods, not knowing where the hell I was and where my glasses were. I went back to my Boy Scout training because I was completely unprepared, I was really unprepared. And I looked up in the sky for the North Star. Damn it, the sun had already risen. Then I remember what they taught me, the sun rises from east to west, but I forgot if camp was east or west. And then Eureka hit me. I saw a dragonfly. And I remember that dragonflies will lead you to water. So, I picked up a few large oak leaves with veins that blush red and covered myself and followed that dragonfly because I knew my camp was near water. Miracle happened. I saw a red door and like a bull, I rushed to that red door because I thought it was a scout leader's cabin and I banged on it like I had horns knowing that there was warmth on the other side. When that door slowly opened, much to my surprise, a woman with a scarf and knee-high socks opened the door and then slammed it real quick. And then I heard a bunch of young girls giggling and laughing. And I realized then that my dreams of being a Boy Scout were probably over. <laughs> Confusing cold, I kind of curled up in the ball next to the door and waited for what was to happen next. A police officer came, his eyes were sad, and I did what I've always been practicing. I told him, my name is Charles Terry. 
I live at 1407 Pompton Circle, and I lost my father. The police officer gave me a blanket and drove me back to camp where all my troop members were asleep, including my father, and didn't even know I was missing. I realized as my father drove me home, because they kicked me out of the Boy Scouts, that on the permission slip my father failed to sign, asked if your child slept walk. Not only did my father forget the permission slip, he forgot to tell me that I sleepwalk. <laughs> I guess he just wanted me to be prepared. That was incredible. Remember when I said it takes guts to get up here and say something and tell people about your life and blah, 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 blah? It takes real get guts to get up here and talk about your poop-stained underwear. <laughs> wow. I, I was so ready to be like, because I thought you were saying, like, your scout leader told everybody, I won't put your shorts up, you know, if you sleep naked. And then he, like, played a joke on you and carried you out into the wilderness. And I was like, that's really fucked up. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad it wasn't me. <laughs> All right, our next storyteller is a stand-up comedian here in town. You can see him often around at like places like the Rigby, uh, Comedy Club on State. He has a show called Bittersweet, that's the name, right? Where it's kind of like this, where people, uh, comedians come and tell stories, uh, and they have to be kind of like the bitter part of the bittersweet. They're kind of sad. And then they have to come back later and do comedy then and kind of reference that bittersweet story. And uh, I've been to one. They're really fun. I don't know when the next one is. Maybe he'll tell us. But uh, please put your hands together for Tyson Purcell. Yeah, I'll be in September. Uh, my mom lost me at a JCPenney, and I think it's just because she wanted to have a break for a little bit. Um, so when it comes to storytelling, there's this uh, author, his name's Joseph Campbell, and he wrote this book about, it's called uh, Hero's Journey. It's where he breaks down all mythology and legend to this core story arc. It's like... Uh, the hero of the story starts out at home and they have their certain upbringing and then they go and they answer the call to adventure and then they go off into the unknown. And in the unknown, they go through trials and tribulations and then they find the elixir, whatever the hell that means. And then they make it back to return home greater than the sum of their parts. So I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about, not that I'm a hero because I am not, my own kind of hero's journey, or at least the part where like, I hear the call to adventure and then get hopelessly lost in the unknown. So it was about 22 years ago. What is this, 1996, I think. I was 19 years old and just really reveling in the fact that I was completely invulnerable. Because like, when you're a 19-year-old young man, you're like, oh man, you have your youth and your health and everything's great and nothing can hurt you and it's amazing. And that lasted for a solid couple of months before I was woken up from that. Uh, I remember I was working at uh, this, this deli at the time and my, uh, my mom called me and she's like, hey, you need to come home uh, it's kind of a family emergency. I need, I need you to come home. And I, and I was just like, can this just wait till the end of my shift? Do I, need, do I really need to come home right now? And she's like, no, I need you to come home. I need to tell you something. Just tell me now. I'll be fine. She's like, no, I need you to come home. So like the 15-minute drive home, I'm just sitting there thinking, I'm just like, they're getting a divorce finally. I'm already 19. I get it. I'm going to be moving out soon anyways. I don't have to worry about shared placement or any of that crap. So I was just like all prepared for that or like maybe like grandma died. You know, it's like, so I had this, you know, thing. So I walk into my, my home and I walk into the kitchen and I look at my mom and I'm kind of perturbed. I'm like, so what is it? And she's like, I want you to sit down. And for the record, when someone tells you to sit down, sit down. But being young and invulnerable, I was like, fuck this. I'm not going to sit down. So I said, I'm just, just tell me. And she's like, Ryan died. I was like, what? 
I'm, I'm sorry, sweetie. Like, they found Ryan's body. Ryan died. And like, as I was collapsing, I just remember like screaming, like, no, N no. Uh, so he was my best friend. We were 19. We were invulnerable. How the fuck did he die? It's like, well, we, they found his body at the base of a, a radio tower out on Tower Road in Baraboo, Wisconsin. That's where I grew up. He'd been lost for days, apparently. <laughs> I was... I went to his funeral, and they said, like, we want you to give a eulogy, because you like to talk, apparently. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know how to handle it. So, like, you know, my forefathers, strong Irish tradition, what you do is you take emotions and then you put them into a little ball. And then you just put them way deep down inside and then you just leave them there until you die. Um, so <laughs> I went to do this, this eulogy and I stumbled through it and I was really kind of on fire for Jesus at the time. It was like, so I like repeated a bunch of like born again Christian shit that I'm not very proud about. Yeah, it was just like, it's like, oh, instead of like talking about this person I loved, I uh, just turned it into like evangelical 15 minutes. And I went and sat down after I got done talking. I just put my head in my hands and just bawled. And I don't really remember anything else until I walked out of that funeral home. And my mom said, all right, well, let's go to Madison because uh, your sister's rehearsal dinner for her wedding tomorrow is tonight. So I was like, okay, let's just tamp this down. Went to the wedding. Everything was great. My one uncle came up to me. He was like, hey, you're, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. I'm just like, you need to not bring this up right now. Jenny is getting married. So a uh, couple of weeks later, and this is the part of the story I told you guys last time I was here. I went to Madison to get school supplies because I just got enrolled in college in, in Baraboo. And then driving back to Baraboo, and I crossed over the center line, and my girlfriend was with me in my, 1990, my 1986 Chevy Cavalier. And I crossed over the center line. I hit a grain truck with four tons of corn in it. shattered my leg and hit my face and took a head wound and uh so that's how I learned my body wasn't invulnerable either so they med flighted me and like on the way like I'm like my memory turned off so I kept on saying things like uh what happened to me and be like you were in an accident it's like was anybody with me yeah, Amanda was with you. And then I'd cry. And then I'd say, is she okay? And then they're like, yeah, she's fine. And then I would say, will she marry me? And they went, oh. And then I was like, can I look out the window? And they're like, no. And then I'd kind of blank out. And I'd start it all over again. So they were worried. And they're like, he just keeps cycling. Like, Short-term memory is not being written into long-term memory. They're not really sure what's wrong. Uh, so when I came to in the hospital, and like I'm, legs are got an external fixator in it, and my face is kind of half put back together again, and my shoulders, are, I'm just a mess. And they gave me a morphine drip with a clicker. So whenever the pain got a little tough, you could just go click. You get a nice dose of morphine. And what morphine, morphine also, a hell of a drug, guys. I can't remember. Remember? Recommended enough. Um, because uh, a lot of people are like, well, drugs get you out. No. What morphine is really good at is it obliterates pain. Mental, emotional, physical, it just makes it go away. Like, I remember when people would uh, come visit me. 
I always remember him coming in the door and then me going, hi guys, click. And then never the, I never remember him leaving. I also remember my mom like within that first day or so, uh, she's kind of trepidatious. Because they didn't really know what was going on with my memory and she was like, hey, I'm sorry, but do you remember about Ryan? Click. She said, yeah, just let it, let the morphine wash over me. Like that was the first sign that like on my little hero's journey that I answered the call to adventure. And when I say answered, I mean, it was just thrust into the unknown because like, That was the first time I was getting kind of lost in the woods because I didn't know how to handle it. Like, I lost my best friend, but I also lost the opportunity to ever tell him I loved him. And... You know, when you, you go on that hero's journey, you go out into the unknown, you're supposed to find this elixir, this thing that changes you, or some sort of MacGuffin in the story that you return home with. Yeah, I found an elixir. It was like six years later. I was like really drinking a lot of booze. Jameson was my elixir. I was like, this stuff is great. So sitting on a curb outside the plaza, like 13 or 14 drinks in and just hanging my head bawling, like, why did I ever get a chance to tell him how much I loved him? Why did I lose that? So... That's the part of the story I'm telling tonight. Getting lost. I've made my return journey home. And I hope that for those of you who are also lost in your own hero's journey, that you also find your way home soon. Thank you. Resolution Therapeutic Massage has actually changed their name to Resolution Health Collaborative, but they are still an established massage therapy clinic in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, specializing in custom massages. Their therapeutic approach is ideal for student athletes, traveling professionals, top performers, and anyone who needs their body and mind to be at peak condition. The therapists at Resolution will evaluate your muscle response and select the best technique for your tailored massage. Clients often experience relief from acute pain after one session and relief from chronic pain after three sessions. Packages for ongoing support are available at a discounted rate. Along with changing the name, Resolution has changed locations. They've got a bigger space, more stuff to offer, and you can find them now at 345 West Washington Avenue in Madison, Wisconsin. Again, that's 345 West Washington Avenue. Call 608-443-7048 to set up your first appointment today. And if you mention Madison Story Slam, you get a discount. Thank you, Resolution, for believing in what we do at Madison Story Slam. And thank you, listeners, for supporting Resolution Health Collaborative. Up next with a story, it's stand-up comedian Seth Rabin. When you're three or four or five years old, your brain starts to get stronger and it starts to have, it starts to remember things. You know, you start to get a sense of the world around you and your sense of wonder grows and it's a, a great feeling. You start to remember things, it's wonderful. But it can also cause a lot of stress on the people around you and it could, you know, put them in danger and scare them. And for those of you that did not see my shirt, uh, excuse me. 
if you're listening to the recording and don't know what just happened, uh, I went on a rock and showed everybody my uh, You're Killing Me Smalls Sandlot t-shirt and said I'm a 90s kid. So if you're nostalgic, then I think you're going you're gonna to appreciate this story. So this took place in 1996 as well. I was five years old. And uh, how many of you have ever heard of the movie Space Jam? For those of you that don't know what Space Jam is, uh, it's the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it's Michael Jordan, Bugs Bunny, uh, Newman from Seinfeld, and Bill Murray fighting a bunch of giant alien monsters in a game of basketball. It, 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 it's awesome, because you know, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in the 90s, and I watched Looney Tunes all the time uh, on TV, and I also grew up in the Chicagoland area when the Chicago Bulls were winning championships, so it was two for the price of one. It was, it was awesome. So my dad took me, my older brother, and a friend of ours, a family friend of ours, we went and saw it, and it was just unbelievable. You know, it had basketball, it had the Looney Tunes, it was this huge movie. It was, it, it was awesome. It definitely, you know, it, it kind of, you know, it inspired me to, you know, want to go out and play basketball myself. So shortly after uh, the movie, um, I'm hanging out in uh, our house. Uh, I lived in the Chicagoland suburbs, and I was hanging out, you know, really bored, and I just figured, you know what, this, this is kind of boring, you know? Uh, you know, uh, Disney Channel cartoons isn't doing much for me right now. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go play some basketball. So I leave the house. I go, I would say maybe three blocks to the local park in our, our town, you know, hoping to play basketball. So I make the journey, I go, and I am at the basketball court. There's a pickup game going on, and I'm, you know, I'm hovering over like, hey, hey, can I play? I want to play basketball. And I, I should point this out. You know you're in a good neighborhood when a bunch of grown men don't want to play with a five-year-old. That's a good neighborhood. So, so eventually after I would say maybe... 15, 20 minutes, nobody wants to play. So I figure, okay, then I'll go off uh, somewhere else. So as I'm walking back the same path that I, I came in on, my mom's old 1980s white Mazda, it had two doors, it was really old, it pulls up right next to me as I'm walking. She rolls down the window and she says, where the hell have you been? I just said, and it, it startled me because, you know, my, when my mom yells, it, 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 it's serious. Like, it's, it's bad. And I just said I was going to play some basketball. I ended up going in the car, and she said, your father has been worried sick. And so I get in the car. I don't know what she's talking about. The next thing I know, the cul-de-sac that we were living in at that time flooded with cops. It was flooded with flash, you know, cars with flashing lights. It looked like a crime scene. Apparently, my... My dad noticed that I was gone, and he was, he was scared out of his mind. So, you know, he called. My mom said, hey, Sot's missing. We don't know what, what to do, what was going on, and everything like that. And I should point out also, this was 1996. This was the very first year of Amber Alert. So if, so if this had been like a year prior or anything like that, I don't know what would have happened. So it was – so we eventually cleared the air. I got back home, everything was fine, the cops left, at least I thought everything was fine. And then, as we went back in the house, my dad just broke down, like he was crying, he was just a mess, he just was so angry at himself for letting, you know, letting me wander off. And, you know, I, I was really, you know, I mean, looking back on it now, obviously, I was affected by it, and I was just like, oh my God, you know, what have I done, you know, what was I thinking? But, you know, I, I must not have done a great job, you know, consoling him because about five minutes later, I was watching Magic School Bus on the TV. So, you know, looking back on it all, I, you know, I noticed, I realized, you know, I've put my parents through a lot of stress. You know, I've put them through all kinds of emotions. You know, I've, I've let them down a lot of times. I've gotten them angry. I've caused so much stress on them. And uh, like Tyson, I'm also a stand-up comic, and if you've ever seen me do stand-up, I've done plenty of jokes uh, about you know my mom and my dad and things like that. But in all seriousness, I owe everything to my parents. You know, they've helped 
they've helped shape me into the man that I am today. And, you know, without them, I don't even want to think about what I would have turned out to be, you know? Oh, and one more thing. Uh, if you're watching VH1 and Space Jam comes on again, I know you all hate commercial breaks, but watch it. It is a classic, and it still holds up to this day. Thank you all very much. Uh, our next storyteller has only signed up under his last name, I believe. I've never heard a story from him, but as always, I'm expecting great things. Please put your hands together for Riggs. Uh, everybody can calm down. This one's not going to be a deep story, so you can just unclench and it'll be all right. <laughs> um, for my birthday this year, I decided to book a trip to Seattle and Vancouver. I'm happy to say I've now peed in the shower in three different countries. So that's a, <laughs> it's a goal. It's good to have goals. Uh, I picked Seattle because I've been there before and weed is legal. And then I picked uh, Vancouver because I've never been there before and they have a train that goes up the coast, and I figured I could eat an edible, look out the window, and have a really good time. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a place where weed is legal, but walking into a dispensary is overwhelming with how much different shit you can put in your body to get high. And everybody there is very willing to talk about, this is a really cool thing, and I was like a kid in a candy store and all the candy had weed in it. It was awesome. So I was drink it, smoke it, I don't care. Let's keep doing this, I'll keep putting it in. This is amazing, this is a good time. I was Cheech and Chong. <laughs> so I spent the three days like by myself. On my birthday, I actually kind of forgot it was my birthday. I went out for a walk and my phone says I walked 10 miles that day. <laughs> That part of it, I wasn't lost. I was just having a pretty good time. But the next day, I had an 8 a.m. I was gonna. I had to get to the Amtrak station by 8 o'clock in the morning to get on this thing. When I get there, they said that the train has been derailed and that they were sending us buses, which is a bummer. But if you ever get a chance to spend three hours sitting in the Seattle Amtrak station, you should just eat more edibles. So I was sitting there and I'm like, okay, time's passing, nothing else is going on, and you know, I can just keep listening to that Jay-Z Beyonce and going ape shit in the middle of a in the station. When the buses finally arrived, they sent three of them to send us all up there. Uh, the first one filled up, I got on the second one, and I sat up front by myself, and nobody sat next to me, which is awesome on the bus. While we were uh, getting ready to leave, there were these British women that were sitting up there, and they were saying, where's Wisconsin? I've never even heard of that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, so their school system isn't good either. Um, but anyway, uh, so the, as the bus is going, I'm just listening to music, and then they hand out the uh, claims forms. And I was like, oh, I've only done this one other time, and my friend was there to help me. I have no idea what to do. Also, I don't know how well I packed those edibles because I was just assuming it was gonna go through an x-ray. So I'm just on my own. But normally I'd usually panic at that time, but I was pretty high. So the, as the bus pulls up, the guy gives us the spiel about what they're gonna do is everybody's gonna get off, you're gonna grab your bags, they're gonna come on the bus, go through, you're gonna go talk to the little guys about why you're going to Canada, and then there's a little room off to the side. You can use the bathroom there. We'll load back on the bus. We should be in and out in like half an hour. I was like, okay, cool. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I can't root through it because that's pretty obvious. And I'm by myself, so I can't like bounce these ideas off of other people. I can't. I, it's a bad time to Google. So I was like, all right, well, we're going to just deal with this as it goes. And when you're bobbing your head, it's kind of obvious as well. But as we're there, we're, I'm looking through, and I'm like, banned substances. Well, I don't see that, so that's good. And then they had a video for the Zika virus. Canada gets things way late. <laughs> like, I haven't heard of Zika in a very long time. So that was like, oh, cool, throwback Thursday. And so... <laughs> 
so I get through and I, I get called up to the stand and he's like, oh, so why are you going to Canada? And I was like, um, to hang out? Uh, I, I did, that was my answer. <laughs> I didn't really have a reason. And he was like, okay, well, where are you staying? And I said, downtown. And I was like, oh, it probably occurs to you that I'm staying in Vancouver and not any other place in Canada that I could refer to as downtown. And he was just kind of staring at me and sort of nodding. And, but everything he said sort of uh, sounded sort of sarcastic or maybe he was just being Canadian. I really couldn't tell. So after a few more questions, he, <laughs> he was like, but I don't understand. You were in Washington and now you're going here. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I was just spending my birthday by myself. I don't know. I was trying to judge whether or not I needed to defend that as sad or depressing. I didn't know that it sounded suspicious. <laughs> so um, he goes, so is weed legal in the state that you're from? And I go, no. And I said, well, it's legal in the state that you just came from. And I was like, yes. And he said, uh, it's not, it's going to be legal here. And I said, yes, in October, right? And he said, yes. And he just looked at me and he goes, okay, go to secondary clearance. And I said, okay. And he just pointed over there. So I walked over there and there's nobody there to help me. And I looked and everybody else is going into the little room and nobody else is coming over to secondary clearance with me. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was gonna be led into Canada. I didn't know if I was going to be arrested. I didn't know if I was going to be sent back to Seattle or if now I live on the border of the United States and Canada. But I just decided I'll sit here and wait. They start loading back on the bus. And I was like, this isn't good. <laughs> and then they check out the last people and the border patrol officer comes over and he said, has anybody helped you out yet? And I go, no. And he goes, oh, I can help you with that. And I was like, you're the guy that sent me over here. <laughs> I, I don't know, okay. And I was like, am I gonna be able to get back on that bus? And he's like, I hope so. And I was like, oh, wonderful. I said, can I use the bathroom? And he goes, okay. But he said it in that way that's like, if that's what you want to do, I still have no idea. So I walk, I go to the bathroom, I leave my bags there. When I come back, he hands me my passport. Everybody's on the bus and he says, okay, bye. And I was like, I have no idea what just happened. So I walk back, I go to the bus, the bus driver looks at me and I'm like, mm -hmm. get back on the bus and I go to Canada. It was cool. The next day, I decided I'm not doing this at the border coming back to the United States. I emptied all my shit. I took an inventory of all my edibles, and I said, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to have to do this in Canada, too. <laughs> Take one for the team. So I st 8 o'clock in the morning, I eat an edible, and I go in the bathroom. I start getting ready, and I look at myself in the mirror, and my mouth is so blue it was as if I ate Smurfs and mushrooms, or Smurfs and blueberries. And that is why he was probably fucking with me. So I hope somewhere there's a sarcastic border patrol agent telling a similar story about fucking with stone tourists. Thank you, Thank you Riggs, for that story about the high life. <laughs> Uh, our next storyteller, again, never told a story here before, I don't think. If you have, Rita, I'm sorry, but I don't think you have. All right. Again, expecting great things because that's just the positive kind of guy I am. Put your hands together for Rita Adair. That's right. I moved back to Madison about a year ago from Chicago um, after seven years there of living and doing storytelling. And uh, when I came back, I said, I was going to do this here, but I haven't done it. And then this tragedy happened. And I saw this event and I thought, well, it's time to get up off your ass and tell a story. 
So um, my story is a hard one to hear, but and I could have told a funny story, but I think I should tell this story. Uh, first, I want to say, in prelude of my story, that I lived here, for, I was born and raised here. Um, my father was a, a WWF, WWE wrestler. Uh, had the world belt three times and was a very famous man. And my mother was the uh, international president of the American Costume Association. And so I grew up in a colorful life with a mother who was a costumer and a father who was a wrestler. And our family was kind of famous in Madison and uh, I became a social worker. And I worked here for years. Um, I retired 30 years from Madison as a social worker and I was the um, coordinator of the Maymore March in Philadelphia. And I was also the person who ran the Katrina Project uh, when Katrina happened and was there before FEMA. So I, I'm telling this for a reason. I'm well known in the community. So uh, 2009, um, I'm going to work and it's a regular day. I'm a social worker, a site manager on Ally Drive, a very challenging community at that time. And uh, I, uh, I, must, I, I go to work, regular day. My mother and I are living in the same building at that time. And she likes to cook dinner. And that day she said, uh, I'm going to make chili, Rita. It's December 3rd, 2009. She goes, I'm going to make chili and uh, come for dinner tonight. I say, okay. So about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, something happened to me. I got violently ill at work. I started vomiting. I, I couldn't see right. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened to me. And I said to my assistant, Estella, I got to go. I, I got to go home. I, I'm sick. I, I don't know what's wrong. And this has never happened before. And so I go home. And I knock at my mother's door and I say, Mom, I'm really sick. I'm going to go in the house. I'm going to take a nap. Uh, uh, let me know when it's dinner time and I'll let you know if I can have dinner or not. So I go in the house, I turn on my TV because I sleep by my TV. And uh, I'm sleeping off this illness and uh, about 5, 5.30 happens. I don't know the exact time today. And chaos happens. My buzzer's going off, my cell phone's going off, my telephone's ringing, someone's banging on the door, and I wake up to all this noise, and I see my TV, and there's my son's face on TV. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I'm, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm like confused. And uh, I jump up and I go to the door and it's my daughter. She goes, come on, mom, we got to go. We got to go right now. Get in the car. Get in the car. I'm like, why do we have to go? She goes, you have to go right now. So I took no purse. I put on my shoes and we jump in the car, in her car. I don't even know what's going on. But my son's face was on TV. And I'm like, what is going on? And she said, I something happened, something happened, and my phone's ringing, and I'm picking it up, and uh, the short of it is that my son um, killed. Uh, he had uh, two daughters, they were both two, and by two different women, and he killed them and his daughters and himself. Five people in one day I lost. And uh, I cannot tell you the devastation of loss that I experienced. Um, I wish I could tell you that I remember my son's funeral and I don't. I wish I could tell you one of the five funerals I went to that day, but I don't even remember. I think there's a survival thing that happens in loss, that when you deal with the most traumatic thing that could happen to you in life, you shut down emotionally. You get into a survival mode because you still have to stand. You still have to figure out, how do I breathe? How do I do this? And so I have very little memory of those days that went forward. I do remember that there were strangers in my house, um, psychics and uh, news media and uh, uh, people that called themselves guides that said they could see my son and my grandchildren and uh, 
people from my childhood, uh, family flooding my house, uh, lots of food. I remember that, but I don't remember conversations. I don't remember what I said, really. Maybe a couple of words, but not really remembering what I said. And it turns out that I stood up and spoke at my son's funeral. I can't even tell you what I said. I don't know. But one of the most amazing things in love and loss is that the families, the victims, the families came to my son's funeral and stood up and talked about my son and how much they loved him and what a wonderful man he was. And I, rem I do remember them talking about my son, like, how could they do that? My son killed your daughter. My son killed your sister, killed your niece, and your, you know, like your granddaughter, and you're standing up at his funeral talking about what a loving person he was and what he gave to you in life and in, in, in my grandchildren and your grandchild and your niece and your cousins and all that. And I... Um, I want to share this because we're really talking about major loss that happened in Sun Prairie. A woman lost her husband. Uh, children lost their father. A community lost someone that they knew really well. And I think it's hard for people to really grasp this kind of loss. There was a time where, and I'm not even exaggerating, I was on the ground wailing like a wolf, like some unknown animal, because I couldn't even come up with how do you deal with this kind of grief. Five funerals in one week for people that I love. Like, what, how, where do you go with all of that? And so it's been 2009 since this has happened to me, and I still cry. I still wail every now and then. And I realize that uh, when people lose somebody, there, there is no healing. There really isn't. There never is. And one of the worst things you can say to somebody is, time will heal this. Because time does not heal. Time just happens to you. Time can change things, but all it does is happen to you. And you can't say that God's got your back or God had a plan. I hope to God that this is not my God that decided that my two-year-old granddaughters and my son and their mothers should all die. That's not the God that I love and that I know, that he would want this to happen to anybody. I think God gave us free will and that we make decisions based on that. And so I always want to talk like that and say that, be mindful about what you say to someone who's dealing with grief. And I think one of the best things that could happen to me is when someone says to me, oh my gosh, Rita, I remember Tyrone. We used to have so much fun skateboarding. We, we played football together. I remember when your granddaughter, you know, got potty trained. I remember, you know, her mother when they, you know, decided to move in together. Whatever it is that when we talk about about life and sharing life, but those are the things that grieving people want to hear. We don't, we don't want to hear the other. We really don't. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't help us to hear someone else's views on life and death. But I want to share something um, about God, and I do think differently about God and religion today, but uh, I want to share this about my granddaughter, my granddaughter, who is now 18, and she was 10 at the time and very close to her little two-year-old granddaughters. Um, it was about a few months later, and she said to me, Nana, I don't pray for Deja and Nevaeh anymore. And I said, what? Why would you not pray for your cousins anymore? And she goes, oh, I got it all figured out, Nana. God put them here to carry their mothers to heaven. And they did. And they're angels. And I want to tell you that I don't believe that. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that this young child had an understanding of something beyond herself. Something that she could grasp onto that helped her figure out how to deal with life and death. And so I always share that because I think it's so important for children to figure out something beyond themselves in case a tragedy happens. It doesn't matter to me what you teach somebody, but it doesn't matter to me that I, whether I believe her or not. I'm so glad that she had something 
that she could figure out on her own for life and death. So today, nine years later, um, I'm writing a book and I'm telling my story and I do a lot of stuff on domestic violence and trainings and uh, public speaking on murders and um, what's called um, familicide. It's when someone kills their family and themselves. And uh, it's very prominent, unfortunately, in our country and in Europe that these kind of suicide, familicides are happening. And so I don't, I don't ever want to say that this has happened for a reason, because I don't believe that. But I believe that all of us um, happen and that all of us have life experiences that give us an understanding and opportunity an opportunity to share, an opportunity to give back, to teach, to learn. And I think we all have that responsibility. And in terms of this family, uh, the Barr family, who's lost so much in Sun Prairie, I hope we can all embrace that today and give to this cause as much as we can and to remember that um, grief belongs to that person. It, it really does. And it doesn't matter how we... Look at it. It's theirs. They own it. And they've got to survive this. And the best we can do is to hold them close and give the most we can give to them. Thank you. Our next story is serious, which is fitting for the evening. Please put your hands together for one of my favorite people ever, Ryan Hack. Yeah, let me shorten this a little bit. Yeah, okay. I gotcha. All right, so here's what happened, guys. I'm a big fan of like just being honest, right? And so like whenever I'm feeling awkward about something, I'll just tell people, hey, I'm feeling awkward, and then just do whatever. So what happened was, I didn't know I was coming tonight until like 20 minutes before the thing, and then I texted Adam and was like, yeah, I'll tell the story. I have a funny story. And he's like, okay, cool. So then like a few minutes ago, he was like, can you tell a serious story about the most devastating thing that ever happened in your life? And I was like, I don't know, bro. And then I had a drink and I was like, sure. <laughs> Cause what I was going to do is be like, Hey, I lost my arm. If you find it, could you let me know? And then just walk away. <laughs> and then that would have been the record because that would have been way shorter than that guy. <laughs> uh, and then I had another story actually about Seattle and Vancouver like rigs, except it had way less weed in it. Um, so actually I'm glad we switched it up because it would have been way less funny. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm gonna try to stay within this, this time frame. Um, but loss sucks um, and, and we're here because of loss, yeah. Okay, all the time in the world. So like an hour or so, I'm just kidding, I won't do that. Um, we've heard some, some stories tonight about loss and, and loss is really hard um, and really terrible. Um, and for me, um, it, it was also very hard. This week actually um, has been very hard because you know if you have Facebook, uh, Facebook gives you these memories, right? And it brings up these things where you're like, oh, these were horrible things that happened in my life. The hooray anniversary for this. Um, so uh, in 2014, uh, my dad uh, had something go wrong with his heart, um, and that was this, this past week. Uh, all these memories were coming up. Uh, he had what was called an aortic dissection, uh, which means his aorta had a tear in it. Uh, it was bleeding uh, into his heart, and, and my brother, in fact, was a uh, an ER nurse at the time, uh, he had just passed some exam and came home, and my dad was, was 61, 62 at the time, um, blue-collar worker, worked for the city of Middleton, was the parks department foreman, and uh, was just sitting on the front step, and my brother was like, you look terrible. And my dad was <laughs> like, this is classic white guy, 60-year-old, blue-collar, like, I took an aspirin, so everything's fine, right? Like, something's wrong with my heart, but I took an aspirin, so we should be good. Uh, my brother's like, don't mess around with this. They call the ambulance. My dad knows everybody in town, so the ambulance shows up, and he answers the door, <laughs> right? And they're like, aren't we here for you? 
He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't turn the lights and the sirens on. It's fine. Like, you don't get to choose that. Like, we're, we're in charge here. Um, and so, so, like I said, this week has been reminders of he went in for surgery, went to the UW. They did amazing work. They fixed his heart. Um, it was awesome for us, not so much for him. Um, I, I think that he kind of thought that he wasn't going to make it through that. We had kind of the, you know, pre-surgery, everybody take care of each other. I love you guys talk, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he did come out of it um, and, and was doing well, or so we thought. Um, <clears throat> and, and I would always ask my dad, you know, how are you doing? And he would say, you know, I'm getting a little better every day, right? Get a little better every day. That was just his thing. Um, and he and my stepmom had recently retired. They were, you know, staying up late uh, and getting up late, which is weird for them, um, and, and making all these plans for, for retirement. So time goes by. A few months goes by. Um, he continues to say that. And then uh, in November of 2014, um, I, I get a call at work, and my wife says, stay calm. I need you to stay calm, but your dad shot himself, and you need to go there right now, And which didn't make sense to me. Um, I was like, why would I need to go there if, if he did that? That doesn't make sense to me. But your brain, kind of like Rita was saying, like, your brain does stuff when loss happens to keep you sane, right? For, for the time being. Um, and on the drive over to my dad's house, I just remember being like, something, something's not computing. Like he, maybe he missed or like it didn't work or something happened. I, I don't know exactly what. Um, but I got there and uh, there were cops and ambulances and whatever all over the place. And it's just surreal kind of walking through there. Um, and knowing that everybody else knows for sure, but you don't yet. Uh, and I remember getting to the door, and my brother was there, and I just said, is he dead? And he said, yes. And then I, I lost it. I, I did the wailing. I kicked everything in sight. Um, it, it didn't make sense to me to lose my dad to suicide. Um, his brother, my Uncle Ed, committed suicide uh, when I was in first grade, about 30 years before. And I remember talking to my own dad a couple years uh, before he did about that for the first time because I was so little, I didn't remember anything about it. Uh, and I just said, can you, can you tell me anything about it? Because I, I struggle uh, with, with mental health issues, with depression, with anxiety, with those types of things. And I was like, I, I don't want that to happen to me. Um, and I need to know what happened with him. And I remember my dad being so angry and so upset and like visibly shaken um, why, why would Eddie do that? Why would he do that to our parents, to his kids, to his wife, to all of us? And I knew how angry it made him. And it didn't make sense to me that my dad would do the same thing. You, you could, I, I would, if I had a million dollars, I would have put it on the fact that he wouldn't have done that, right? Um, and so it, it just didn't make sense. Um, I remember my uncle didn't leave a note, and I was always mad about that. And I remember being in my dad's house and the, the policeman coming over and, and giving me uh, the notebook where my dad had written his note. And I saw his handwriting, and it, it basically went like this. He handed it to me, I saw his handwriting, and I just chucked it as hard as I could behind me. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see that my dad took the time to write something and then kill himself anyway. Um, it didn't make sense. Um, and, and for the longest time, for me, um, you know, we talked to, there's several people up here who kind of talked about, you know, what do you say to people who are grieving? What do you say to people who, who have lost someone? What do you say, you know, suicide is this thing that we, it's just hard to talk about, right? And you don't know exactly what to say. Um, and, and I remember one of the things that people kept saying was, you know, remember the good times. Um, and I remember for the longest time, I was like, there, there aren't any. There aren't any good times. The good times are tainted by this. They aren't good times anymore because he's not here. I, I lost him, right, to, by his choice. Um, and, and if he only knew how much we all loved him and cared about him and would have helped him uh, through this, he, he essentially, he, I, I think, you know, again, like I resonated so much with what you said about... Um, you have to figure out how to move on yourself. You have to figure out the story that works for you um, because he doesn't get to tell you. It's not his place anymore. Um, and so for me, knowing my dad and knowing um, how his identity was wrapped up in how strong he was, um, 
how he took care of everyone, how he didn't want to be a burden on anyone. I know all of that weighed on him. The physical pain, I know that he didn't want to address that with anybody, uh, but he talked about that a little bit. Um, and I just think he got to a point where he, he said, I'm, I'm going to take care of this so nobody else has to, and that it's not going to be a surprise. I think he thought that his heart at any moment was going to give, and so he, he actually, the way he did it was he shot himself in the heart. And I think that was intentional. I think that was him saying, you don't get to decide this. I get to decide this. And I'm doing this now. Um, and nobody else has to worry about it. Without understanding, I think, the consequences of those actions, obviously. Because he loved us all very much. I know that for sure. <clears throat> um, but, but for the longest time, I think, I struggled with what does this do for his legacy, right? For his memory, for who he was, um, and how we remember him. Uh, and I remember at his, his wake, at his visitation, um, they actually said that it was the, the longest that they had to stay open that they could remember. Um, I had friends who wanted to come and, and see me and visit me for that who said, when I got there, the line, they said it was gonna be three hours to get there. Um, there were hundreds, hundreds of people who came through um, to pay their respects because that's how many people he affected. And every one of them had a story with him. I loved fishing with your dad. I loved bowling with your dad. He was the best boss I ever had. He busted our ass, but man, we had fun, right? And he was the best coach I ever had. He, he coached baseball. Um, everybody had these connections with him. He affected people in positive ways, and, and which is great, but you also think like, why didn't he see that? Why couldn't he have have grabbed that and say, you know what, it's, it's okay that I'm not feeling like myself. People still love me and want to help me. But I know that that, that was the, the farthest thing um, from his mind. And so for me, it was like, how do I deal with the fact that all of that stuff is still true, but the story ended the way that it did? Um, and I've, I've chosen to believe that the end doesn't nullify anything that came before it, right? When you watch a movie, when you read a book, like the end is great, but the whole thing is the whole thing. It doesn't make that all go away, right? Like <laughs> you watch The Sixth Sense and at the end you're like, oh, he's dead. Oh, that guy's dead. Now it makes sense, <laughs> right? And then you go watch the movie like again and again and you're like, oh, look, you can see their breath. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And so for me, it was just kind of coming to this realization kind of slowly but surely that all of those things are true. Even though the end sucks, the end is the worst. I would not pick that ending anytime for anyone, but it happened. And, and the fact of the matter is all of the stuff that came before is still true. He was still a great dad. He was the best, like you look up grandpa in the dictionary and that's who he was, right? Like my kids got to experience that for, for a, uh, an amount of time. Um, I, when a, a picture just came up on freaking Facebook. God, Facebook, come on. This picture of him on his hands and knees, my daughter on his back, and my other daughter and son just playing cards with him. And I'm like, that's it. That's who he was. And he didn't think that was him anymore. He didn't think he could do that anymore. But I remember when he was that guy. Um, and all of these people remember who he was. And so um, I guess my, my encouragement to you, you know, we've been talking a lot about loss. Um, and, and suicide, I think, especially is really difficult because it's, there's, there's so much unknown and it's so like, I don't know, it's just one of those taboo things that I think we just need to talk about. And I guarantee there are people in this, in this space that have dealt with it. I mean, obviously we know that. I know people in here who have dealt with that um, directly. Um, and the, the challenge, I think, is, is to get to a point where we're able to accept that as part of their story. But it's not the whole story. The end is not my favorite part, <laughs> but the rest, the rest of it is still true. Um, and, and I still remember him fondly, um, with love, and I know he loved us. Um, and, and I hope that you will do that with the people uh, in your life, too, if that's something that you've dealt with or that you deal with at some point just to remember that the whole story still is, is important. The, the whole story still exists, no matter how it ends. Um, so I love you guys, and uh, if you do find my arm before we leave tonight, just let me know. All right, thanks.
Hey, I warned you guys, uh, there are some pretty serious stories that uh, might have brought you down, but I love what Ryan said there at the end. Uh, the whole story is important, and I love that. Thank you to all of our storytellers, but especially those who have been so vulnerable with things that are so personal to them and, and just sharing that with us so that we can learn and grow with them and come together as a community and love each other and you know stand with each other in these hard times. That's really important. Another thing that I think is important is progression. And Madison Story Slam is taking steps to progress to the next big thing. And that big thing is live video streaming our events. You can go to GoFundMe.com slash Live and find out how you can help us start live streaming every Madison Story Slam event. It would be huge if you helped us, if you donated, if you shared the link on your Facebook or your social media, whichever one you choose to use, it all helps. And uh, you guys have been great about uh, getting it out there and people have been donating. That's been so awesome to see. Our next Story Slam is Saturday, September 15th at the Wilmar Center. The theme is transformation. So come ready to hear some great stories and have some great community like we always do. It always builds me up. And as always, I love you.